when I wrote The Rosie Project, which was only you know, six years ago, neurodiversity wasn't a word that was bandied around very much at all. It's really come through in that period of time. I think I had an instinctive and intuitive idea of it, just saying that someone like my hero, Don Tillman, all I was really trying to say in the book is, he's all right. This is a guy that you say, he's the weird guy in accounts, he's got all the pens lined up or, or whatever. And what people did do, they came out of that book saying, you know what, he might be a good guy to date. <laughs> And that was really what it was about, just saying, look, he's part of the human race too. He's not someone that you that you isolate and marginalise. And really neurodiversity, I think, is is just about embracing a wider and wider range of that. That's mega-selling author Graham Simpson, and this is episode 273 of the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is part one of my conversation with Australian author Graham Simpson. You can find him on Twitter at Graham Simpson, G-R-A-E-M-E-S-I-M-S-O-N. More about Graham in a moment. If you've just joined us, if you're new to this show, welcome. Hi. Thanks for being here. What is this podcast? Well, this podcast is a weekly conversation in two parts that you get to be a part of. And hopefully this conversation will, uh, hopefully it'll make help make today better than yesterday. That's really what we're trying to do here. Sometimes you'll hear a chat with someone you know. Sometimes you hear a chat with someone that you don't know. Um, no matter what, I guarantee you'll hear something in this episode that you need to hear. You'll hear something that'll help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something that'll make you think about the world a little bit differently, maybe. Something that'll, I don't know, help you have another look at the way you do things and hopefully make this day feel better than the last. But I've got to tell you, things won't feel better unless you do the work to make them feel better. You gotta remember, nothing changes unless you do. You can hear something in this chat, something that resonates, but unless you put it into action, nothing's gonna change. Nothing will change for you. And I'm sorry, I'm been an interesting morning. Got a lot of people uh, sending me DMs and emails on, um, so DMs on Instagram and emails. Uh, very kindly people saying, yeah, I read your book. That's very sweet. Um, and they've got their own struggles. I know I'm not alone. Um, and they were very happy to read another person's perspective and that they felt less alone by reading it. And But then I ask him, oh, look, I'm sorry that that's happening. Um, are you getting help? Three out of five times they say, no, not getting help. Come on, man. <laughs> it starts with your GP. It starts with your GP. Get a referral to a psychologist and go out, try a couple of psychs until you find the one that fits. Um, you got to do it. you got to do the work. Nothing will get better unless you do the work. I, I myself, I know I've been talking to you about this recently. I've, I've just started with a new psychologist. It's always tricky when you say, sit down and do your bloody history again. Um, but my new psych's got me, got me doing homework every day. I'm doing homework. And it's exactly like my lifting coach, I, like the guy that I train with physically. I can't expect my body to get stronger if I don't lift the heavy weights. And I've got to train my body every day if I want my body to get stronger. Similarly... I can't expect my mind to change if I don't train it every day, if I don't do the work. So I've got my little checklist of things I need to do every day, my little exercises, write things down, do some things, listen to a thing, notice some things. And I'm trying to get them into the routine. So I just do them every single day. And 
Oh, it's been about two weeks now. Slowly, slowly, things are starting to adapt. Things are starting to change. I'm starting to notice them a little bit here and there. But you've got to do the work. You can't hire a trainer and join a gym, never go and expect a six-pack. <laughs> you've got to do the work. As my man Rich Roll says, brick by brick, you've got to build the house. You've got to do it. So if you're struggling, by all means, uh, look, it's always great to be in touch with people. It's always great to talk. Um, you can send me a DM, send me an email, but you better bet I'll be asking you if you're getting help. And yes, better be your answer because I can't fix you for you. You you can get the work done. I can't do the work for you. Um, and there's enormous power in doing the work. I can't stress that enough. There's enormous power in taking control of what you can and doing the work with what you can do. Um. I always ask you if you're getting help and if you're doing the work because it helps to remind me to be a stand for the same thing. It means reminds me, come on, you got to do it. You tell other people, you got to do it yourself. So it helps me get out of my funk to do it when I don't want to do it. And if I see you in person, I'll definitely ask you. If you come to the live gigs, I'll definitely ask you. Um, we are, did I mention we're playing some live gigs? We're, we're Farnaming, we're coming back. Um, that's a joke because uh, John Farnham did a big tour. He said, this will be the last time. He played a Beatles cover and that was it. Good night. And then about a year later, he came back. I didn't wait a year. I waited 10 weeks. Uh, so we've got some new shows coming through. Uh, Canberra, Wollongong, Gold Coast. It's going to be great. Uh, tickets are available now. We're playing in the Spiegel tent, which is going to be awesome. Um, tickets available now, osherginsberg.com. I would love to see you there. A big thank you very much to everybody that got in touch this week. Uh, some people are listening to the show in so many great places, sending me a podsy. What's that? It's a picture of what you're looking at while you're listening to this show. So you're probably listening to this on a phone, except for the few people that work in the laboratories who send me great pictures of lab testing. And it's brilliant. Uh, but most of the people that listen to the show listen on a phone. So take a photo of what you're looking at right now. Send it to me. I'd just love to see where you listen to the show. You can uh, hit me on Instagram or you can email it to me, send us your email at gmail.com. Um, where have we been this week? We've been on a ferry between the Isles way in the north of Scotland. Uh, we've been washing dishes while the kids are asleep. Uh, we've been hanging off the side of a building on an abseiling rope during some external building inspections this week. We have been everywhere. Where will we go next? I'd love to see. I'd love to see where you're listening. Um, just don't do it while you're driving, please. Don't do it while you're driving. You know, get your passenger to do it. Please don't you do it. It's very dangerous. Just snap a pic, send it in. Hit me on Instagram or send us your email at gmail.com. That'd be great. Um, a quick note. Uh, as you know, if you've been listening for a long time, we've recently started splitting the episodes into two, part one and part two. And um, just I'm keeping the you know kind of testing phase going. Uh, we're now going to put the second episode out tomorrow. Okay, uh, there's a bunch of feedback came in and I'm trying to see how I can make this work the best for everyone. And so let's just try for a little while. We'll do Monday, Tuesday for the episodes and we'll see how we go. If you're wondering why we did split the episodes, well, the decision is based on the fact that we can see all the numbers of how long people listen for, all right? And the numbers don't lie. The numbers show that by splitting the show in two, more people listen to more of the show um, versus when it's just one big chunk. Uh, we all work very hard to get the very best guests we can on the get on this show. We work very hard to have the best conversations we can have on this show. And we just want more people to listen to more of the show. Um, it's a big team. Well, a team of four or five people that work on this show. And um, 
we just want to make sure that as many people as possible can enjoy it for as long as possible. That's that's why we split it in two. But I've been reading a lot of the feedback that's coming through Instagram, email, Facebook. So this little tweak will hopefully address most of the issues that people have, not wanting to wait too long for part two. So I'll bring out the next episode tomorrow. So we'll try Monday, Tuesday for a while and we'll, we'll see how we go. We are working on a way for the whole episode to be available at once, but that is a little while away yet. Not too long, but a little while. So for now, I'll be bringing you part two of my chat tomorrow. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let me tell you about my guest today. Graeme Simpson is an Australian author, screenwriter, playwright, and data modeler. Yeah, we get real nerdy and talk about data modeling in this conversation. Uh, Graeme changed careers relatively late in life to become an author and achieved astonishing success with his books centered around the character Don Tillman. Uh, the books, of course, The Rosie Trilogy, The Rosie Project, The Rosie Effect, and now most recently, The Rosie Result. Graham kindly and gently introduced the world to Don Tillman a few years ago now. Uh, but Don's a man who has a different way of going about life. Uh, it's never really mentioned explicitly early on in the books, but Don is a genetics professor with high-functioning Asperger's syndrome. You'll find out why in this chat. Uh, that it was so important for Graham to write about Don this way, and indeed why it's important to celebrate neurodiversity. The idea that neurological differences like autism, ADHD, etc., are the result of, in some people's ideas, normal, natural variations in the human genome. I'll let the conversation explain the rest. But if you like what you hear, you can let Graham know. He's on Twitter, Graham Simpson, G-R-A-E-M-E-S-I-M-S-I-O-N. Enjoy part one of my conversation with Graham Simpson. So what do you want to talk about? Well, what do I want to talk about? <laughs> I, look, there's so much to talk about with you. I think it's quite, it's quite fascinating. Um, uh, f- for a start, I, I think your your story, your personal story, I think is one that's you know very interesting. Not you know to mention the the world that you've created with the Rosie books and and what you talk about in the Rosie books. That's also something to talk about. But I, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, you let's just you know a bit of background here. We both have something in common that we both weren't born here in Australia, and we both came here. How old were you when you showed up in Australia? I was 12. Right. So I'm guessing that 
you, you, you weren't like, see you suckers, and came by yourself. You came with your parents. I came with my parents, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I say against my will, it wasn't a, it wasn't a move I wanted to make. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I had, a, had established friends. I was at school and so forth in New Zealand, and, you know, life was all right. And suddenly you're going to be uprooted. You're going to be taken away from your friends and so forth. Most kids are not, you know, I wasn't saying, wow, this is going to be exciting. This will be fun. It was, oh, you know, I'm settled here. I'm, you're going to make me move. Yeah. What part of Australia did you move to? To Melbourne. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And you've, you've been there. And I've been there, you know, with breaks, but yeah. you know, essentially that's where my roots are now. Yeah, yeah. Was it tricky as, as a kid? Cause, you know, ours is nearly 15 now, so I've seen her go from, you know, 12 to 13. Well, yeah, it was really tricky. In, in fact, the, the book, The Rosie Result, which I've which just been published, I had to write an autistic or potentially autistic boy, you know, someone who there was some doubt about and there was a discussion about whether you have a diagnosis and so forth. Trouble with writing a kid is that age is so specific. You know, if I write him, you know, if I say he's 12 and I write him like an eight-year-old, people are going to get that at 14. I can't remember what I could do at 14, 12 mm. versus so. But I did remember that year of my life, that year when I was 11 turning 12, absolutely crystal clear. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll make it me, in effect. I remember what I could do and so forth. And I was a pretty nerdy sort of kid at that time. So I felt I was a reasonable reasonable substitute there. That ended up being a, a real journey for me, exploring it. And I ended up writing um, quite a long essay, you know, 6,000-word essay for um, a collection called Split About you know, Changes in Your Life. Um, and that I did it for you. Lee Kaufman is, uh, is publishing those in June. And you know what? That took me more effort than the entire book, that 6,000-word essay, because it was, it was personal exploration. It was saying what was really going on for me at yeah. that stage in my life. And, and I concluded you know, that I would have almost certainly in today's world got an autism diagnosis at that age. At, at 12, if, if you presented me as a 12-year-old or 11-year-old today, filled out the questionnaire and so forth, they would say, clearly in. <laughs> as it were, mm. and, and I know that I wouldn't qualify for an autism diagnosis now. So I'm not sitting here saying I'm autistic, but the received wisdom is that it's a lifelong condition. So, you know, pick, pick two statements. I was autistic at 11. I'm not autistic now. It's a lifelong condition. They cannot be true. Right. I guess that would have been, you know, you don't know anything different as a kid. The world's just what it is and it comes at you and it's weird and strange and smells funny and there's people with different names and they sound weird and food's different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and look, I think, you know, if you look at, you know, because again, I'm writing about autism and so forth, if you look at how it was treated back in the day, there was no word for, for nerdy kids other than nerds, geeks or or whatever. Yeah. And they were, they were part of the environment. But on the one hand, there was no accommodation made. I mean, today you can say, hey, this kid's autistic, so don't, you know, he's not going to be able to do this too well or she's not going to be able to do that too well. That, that'll be a limitation, so let's make an accommodation for that. But at the same time as doing that, um, it's very easy to be patronising, to lessen them, to diminish the respect that you have for that person. So it's not necessarily a, an unalloyed good moving from what we had to what we have now. Mm. I, I remember, like, in my primary school years, I think we had a demountable down at the bottom of the, yep. the campus, you know, and that was kind of, they got there half an hour after we started and they left half an hour early. So we never kind of really saw them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was, was kids, yeah. that was kind of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that, that was kind of it. And, you know, occasionally a, a kid would come in early in the year and they'd be there for about a week and a half. And then, oh, we'd, let's call him, I don't know, Ryan. Where'd Ryan go? Oh, he's gone to you know, room 12. Yeah. Like, dun, dun, dun. Well, well, you see, I think we had the two quite distinct groups at that time, what we might traditionally have called autistic, who were the kids who you know, 
were not going to be coping well at school. They, they had limited speech. They had all sorts of you know, real issues there. And at the other end of the scale, you had what we used to call Asperger's, um, who were often top of the class or might well be top of the class, sharp, hyperverbal, all those sorts of things. So they weren't going to end up back in, you know, back in our school, it was room 16. Oh, they, right, yeah. They weren't going to end up down in room 16. and They were going to end up in room eight, top of the, room one, top of the school. Yeah. But on the other hand, they weren't necessarily going to be picked first for the sports teams. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, you know, that, that leads to, I don't want to use the word spectrum too much, but that, you know, leads to what education was when you went through it, when I went through it, and what it is now, which is seems to be the granularity of accommodation of, you know, kids' ability and learning ability is is far finer than it was then. You either could or you couldn't. You're either in you're either running on the field or you're not, you know. Yeah, although although I went to a school in New Zealand where everything was streamed. So you had room one well, in, in second form as it was back then, so what we call year eight now. Room eight was the top room, room nine was second, room 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and then 16 was like the group class for both both years for those kids who weren't who weren't mm. cutting it. Um, so it was streamed in the extreme, and then you sat in class in order of academic achievement in that top class. So one, <laughs> one to 42, and every six weeks you had a full set of exams. So you were being trained for um, an exam life, if you like. Ruthless. Oh, it, it, literally, like, we all moved our desks with our papers and everything like that in it. It would say, okay, so you, you've moved from number seven to number nine. You, you've gone down to 42. Oh, man. That's like when I worked in radio. It's like bloody ratings coming in every morning. Good yeah. Lord. It's hard. you constant under constant scrutiny. You, uh, you had a lot. You're an author now. People know you probably most famously as an, as an author of fiction books, but you had an entire life in the world of data. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, You're a professor. Yeah, well, I was a... I taught, but I, I wasn't. I wasn't a full-time academic. That was a bit on the side. I was a, a data expert, and I ended up starting my own business, which we grew to around um, seventy people at the, at the top. That's big. Melbourne can well, you're substantial. I mean, I was a boss. Yeah. And so, when you get to that size, you're not so much doing the data stuff. You're doing the the management stuff. And we did business consulting. We did a whole a whole range of things. So it was a pretty radical shift. I was fifty when I made the when I made the move. Well, I will we'll get to there, but yeah. I'm interested to know what what is it that brought you to data analysis and and that sort of thing. Oh, look, a, a series of events, I suppose. Um, I did a physics degree, and when I got to the end of it and realised that I wasn't going to be able to do I wasn't smart enough to do, to be a theoretical physicist. I wasn't going to be Stephen Hawking. And, and by the way, I'm not being modest here. I'm, I'm saying I was pretty smart, but I just didn't have that level that I was going to be the only guy in the world who understood an, a particular equation or whatever. And I realised that about three years in, you know, finally my university course. So um, then I thought I'll teach, and I couldn't get a teaching scholarship so computers were along I got a computer operator's job that was something I saw young lad 18 or 19 required for work because women were not accepted and age range all the things you couldn't have now and got that job moved into computer programming and I think just ambition when the data-based stuff came along it was all brand new and do something brand new so I got on the ground floor of some um, some technology that was just coming along and that was really what I built the career on. It would have been transformative for business at the time to be able to analyse. I mean, I'm guessing what, what, what industries were you working well, with? I was an insurance company first. All right. So, so and by, I, I was in the insurance company for you know, a few years and then I, I went off and freelanced. So I worked all over the place in banks, uh, the railways, yeah. all over the place. I mean, what they were really about at that stage was not so much about analysing the data as much as just processing it. It was just your transaction system, your, your electricity bill, your... your your train tickets, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you ever think now that, you know, when you've got these data points that you're collecting for an insurance company, you know, the 
you know, let's say there's 10. If it were now all worth little railways, there was like 10, you know, this many tickets were issued, this many tickets got sold, you know, at this time of day, whatever, whatever, whatever. Now there would probably be, you know, a thousand data points for every one of those things that you counted. Oh, yeah. And, and our, our approach these days, well, A, we can just store so much more data than we used to be able to do. I mean, you, you hear all these sort of things. I've got an Apple Watch here and that's got more capacity than the entire computer system that we had that filled up several rooms when I when I started working in computing so we can grab way way more data and what we are doing much more now what they are doing because i'm out of it is analyzing data that was captured for other purposes you know you're looking at the net and saying let's look at all these messages look at all these searches and so forth let's just do a massive data analysis on that i'd imagine that there would have to be an amount of creativity in analysing data and particularly analysing data that was captured for another purpose and try to make an interpretation. Well, that's, that's more today's today's work. What I was doing back then was I was designing the databases. I was designing the shape of the database in order to store the data. And funnily enough, there's been great debate about how much creativity is involved in that in that task. You know, there was a one, one theory that was, this was just a basically mechanistic. You asked people what they wanted, you did a technical implementation of that and away you went and I used to argue that it, we were more like architects, that we were having to come up with designs that people might not even know they needed. Um, and I ended up doing a PhD on that. So that, that there, was this a creative process was essentially the topic of my PhD. When you think about, and if anyone's seen the, the film Hidden Figures, they might have a mm. clue about the size of the machines that you're you working with. They f- literally filled rooms. Oh, that yeah, was- huge. I mean, uh, big, big rooms, halls, almost like yeah. halls and... Uh, and as I say, the power by today's standards was just just nothing. But they didn't they use like uh, like two inch magnetic tape or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, we used we had big magnetic tapes, and we would we would work shifts when I was an operator. We would uh, um, work shifts, and I'd sleep while well you know, I'd lie on the desk and fall asleep on the night shift and so forth until I could I'd be woken up by the tape going into rewinds. And when when the tape finished, it bzzz, it, it, and that'd be just enough to trigger me to wake up and change tapes and go back to sleep again. So I was. <laughs> I wasn't the only one. We just we just trained ourselves, um, or just fell into that habit of being able to wake up to do what we had to do. But that, within that's the thing that boggles my mind. I guess is that within your lifetime, we've oh, seen yeah. this processing power go from just I don't know, two hundred square meters, yeah, yeah, to the size of the watch on your hand. Oh yeah, look, not not just in my lifetime, in my adult lifetime, we've seen those those sorts of changes. You know, this idea that computer power you know, yeah. doubles every. You know, it's, um, Roche's law or whatever that every so many years, yeah, and yeah. it just keeps. And we could, everybody kept saying yeah, that's going to stop happening pretty soon. It, it just kept on happening and happening and happening. It, it does, you know, it fascinates me as to what then will be possible, and and we kind of get to this point. You talk about designing databases and stuff like that. You know, I'm guessing people now they are designing for for an expected capacity or an expected processing speed and power because it's not there yet. But by the time we implement this in two years, it will be. Yeah, look, there's a certain amount of that, yeah. I, I don't think – actually, no, I think that's so, so true. I think we, we design for the platforms that are available yeah. today. But, I mean, one presumes that you've got research research people at, at Apple and Microsoft and so forth who are saying, well, you know, what sort of platforms are we going to have two years down the track? What sort of software might we be able to run yeah. on that? When you were – so you've got this, this massive business, 70, 70 employees is no joke. Um, you've got clients all over the country. Um, you're 50 years old and you go – yeah, I'm done. What was it? Well, I read a book. Okay, so the book that changed my life, quite literally. It's a book by Joe Queen, an uh, American film critic, and it describes how he set out to make a movie. He was trying to emulate uh, Robert Rodriguez, who made the movie El Mariachi, 
reputedly for $7,000 in Mexico, which he raised by selling his own blood. So there's a real legend here. He thought, can you really make a movie for $7,000? And and the answer was no. Um, But he wrote a a book about the experience doing this, which almost cost him his marriage and and so on and so forth. And I read this book and thought, that sounds like just so much fun. And I showed it to my wife. She was a a frustrated author at that stage, so I sold it to her by saying, look, I'll take one of your unpublished novels, we'll adapt it as as a screenplay, and we'll make a movie. How can that be? And I figured I could, I could manage it because I had the management skills. I was a good technologist. I could do the technical stuff. It was only the art to worry about, so how could that be? Anyway, over about a year, we made this 90-minute uh, terrible film. But I got the bug. I got the screenwriting bug um, because well, it was my part doing the screenplay. And, in fact, Sue Maslin, the, uh, the film producer, saw it. The, the woman who directed it was in a film class, and she took it along to the film class. And, and Sue said, well, you know, a lot of stuff not to like about this movie, but... The screenwriter seemed to know what he was doing, and that was all it took. It was like someone thinks I could do this, so so that was that was a huge life change. And in due course, I, I sold the business, kept freelancing because I couldn't afford to give up the day job completely, but sold off the possibility of you know listing on the stock exchange, getting really big or anything like that. And just said no, my my interest lies elsewhere, and uh, enrolled in a course in screenwriting. That's an extraordinary thing for you to do. I'm guessing you've got a, you know, you've got a family at this point. Yeah, yeah, two kids, um, and my wife never questioned it. She never said, "Are you sure this is the right thing to do?" She just said, "If you want to do that, Graham, you, you go for it. That's, that's terrific." And, and I remember, um, basically, as soon as I quit the job, I came home and she said, "Oh, by the way, I've taken on a bit of another project, so you'll be doing some childcare." <laughs> oh, hang on, there's a downside to this. Oh, but, or an upside, you get to spend- well. I, you're absolutely right. I got to spend time with the kids I wouldn't have otherwise. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I actually I went back and did the PhD. That's the thing I did first, which was a, a weird decision to take. Rather than enrolling in screenwriting, it was a bucket list thing. I thought, I've got to do this PhD. It's been one of those life things. I'll never get it done if I don't do it now. What's it like being at a university campus when you're in your 50s and you're just surrounded by children? <laughs> <laughs> no, PhD research stuff is a lot of older people doing. Yeah. Now, you know what? That, that didn't bug me. What bugged me? was my wife is a full professor. And you know, in the university hierarchy, you've got full professor up there and you've got PhD student down there. That you know, They're there in the sort of, you know, in terms of the faculty sort of picture. And I would go to, you know, I remember one particular lunch and everybody at the table was a full professor except me. And, I'm a P- and they'd say, what do you do, Graham? And I'd say, well, I'm a PhD student. And it's almost... You had to say, oh, but I used to be a captain of industry. You know, <laughs> I, I used I used to be someone. Yeah, and that was that was a real message in sort of identity and just and associating with your job and and so on. And it took me a while to get through that. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. And you know, and then I never went to to university, and I always I always felt terrible about myself because I hadn't because I, I did actually I did go to university for six weeks part time, but it was too hard, so I dropped out. Well, look, I'll tell you, I, can, I know exactly why I did that PhD. I would have been under 12 or under 13 because we were still in New Zealand when it happened. And there was just something on the radio and somebody had earned a degree. You know, it was probably someone who was disabled or, or notable or old or something like that. But so it was worth noting on the radio this person had completed a degree. And I said to my dad, you know, what's, what's a degree? So I must have been pretty young. And he said, oh, look, they're nothing. He says, you've got to have a PhD. And... That sat with me all my life. It was like this father's expectation that one day you'll have a PhD, was, which he didn't have. He didn't go to uni. Was he around to see you get the PhD? Yeah, yeah, he was around. He only died um, less than a year ago. So uh, he was around to see me get the PhD. I don't think he was all that fast. 
<laughs> he was actually very critical of PhDs. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. Thanks, Hapes, mate. Exactly. Yeah, thanks for planting that. But I think, I think as parents, we, do, we don't know. We just don't know when we've actually planted something either by something we've said or some action that we've taken, their kid says, well, this is definitive, this is, this is going to change my life. And you think, I didn't mean that, I'll take it back. Yeah, I had, this, uh, I had an Uber driver the other day, he's a, a lovely guy from, uh, he was, I can't remember the name of the city, he taught me how to pronounce it, it's from mainland China. And he asked me, he goes, oh, how, do you, how do you teach your, your kid, uh, you know, what's good and what's bad and what's the right thing and the wrong thing. And I just said straight up to him, like any time that I say, okay, now G, here's how you do this and that's why. Yeah. She will not listen yeah. and the shutters will fly up. Yeah. She just copies what she sees and yeah. that's how it takes, that's how yeah. she does Don't do what I say, do what I do. Yeah. But, but, you know, I mean, this is what the Rosie Result book is about. Ultimately, okay, it's about autism, but it's also about how you bring up kids because you've got this choice at the end. One end of the scale, you're saying – I'm going to mould them into the, the right thing. And that, that, that was what, how I grew up pretty much, you know. It was gendered too. You know, you're going to be a man and a man can do the following 35 things. You've got to be able to swim. You've got to be able to throw a ball. You've got to be able to do this, do this. And then the other end of the sky, you've got to sort of, well, let them be themselves. They are what they are. Let that let them, let them blossom. But even but if you take that view, there's going to be times when they're not doing well and you've got to say, well, okay, I'm – they're not doing well in the sense that they're unhappy, they're, they're alienated. At what point do you step in? How do you provide guidance? What are you going to do? When you did change careers, was there uh, an effect with the kids? Was there was there a financial repercussion? You know, how did you talk to the kids about it? Um, look, I think I think that was very much a, a do what we do sort of thing. We were I think we were demonstrating to the kids. We didn't talk to them much about it. This is going to happen. You know. Mm-hmm. There was no big financial implication. My wife still had a job and I was freelancing. So freelancing, I still had a, a solid income without the risk. Mm. So, in fact, I wasn't working crazy hours and thinking, you know, if we fail to win $50,000 worth of business every single day, you know, we're going to go, you know, yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll, we'll lose the house. We're so, not going to make payroll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. We'll yeah. have to make payroll. Yeah, yeah, you had a huge payroll. 70 people. Bloody yeah, yeah, we had a huge payroll and, yeah, and they were virtually all permanent staff. So it was nice to, to lose that. But... I think what we ended up modelling for them was my wife is a medical specialist is what she would say was in the sausage machine. You, you, you start off and you enrol as a medical student and your career is mapped out for you. You can There's a few junctions. You say, oh, I can specialise in this or specialise in that or not specialise, but it, it's a, a pretty standard way of doing things. Your work is not risky at all. You know, doctors are very seldom out of work and so on. The income is, is good and stable. And then I was you know, the opposite. I was the guy who was running a business with all the risk attendant on that and then decided to chuck all that in and go and do something else. And we felt, well, you know what, it's good that they've got those two role models. They can, you know, As they grow up, they can look at that and say, well, I could be one of those. Yeah. Which, which one am I going to be? Yeah. And I think we've sort of got one of each of them. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how old are they now? Uh, late 20s. All right. Yeah, mid to late 20s, yeah. And so they're, they're doing okay? Yeah, they're doing fine. Uh, my son's a, um, a psychologist and uh, works in the prison system, um, so he's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. wow. But but it's it's a little like my wife in this in the sense that it's it's secure work. It's uh, yeah, mm. not hugely well paid for what it, for what it is and what goes with it. But it, you get the paycheck every time. Right. Whereas my daughter's joined a startup type company with a bit of um, IT stuff and's got the, the the high status and that sort of thing, but the uh, the low security. Right, right. Got a C in the title, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, boy, I mean, so, well, they, they really have both because your wife's a psychiatrist. Yeah, that's correct? right. Yeah, yeah, so they both really, really have both followed in. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. My 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 daughter's developing, you know, developing, managing the development. Thank you. Yeah. Of applications and so forth. So yeah. it's, it's software stuff. So she's probably gone much closer to what I've done, and, and my son yeah. is, is very much in the same. Gee, that psychology <laughs> in the prison system, man. That's uh, I had my the first guy that actually diagnosed me with PTSD. That's what that's who, that was his day gig. <sighs> Yeah. His his day gig was um, he would just be down at oh, what's the building? There's a building in Sydney that's the magistrates court basically, and he would yeah. just be just be down there just every day, trying to you know give it you know this is what's going on with this guy. Yeah, well, my wife does a bit of that too. She does assessments and right. So yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's tough, and certainly you know, and I know it's a, you know, a cause that you you're aligned with, but when you consider the role of mental health and the, the role of or lack of interventions and what that can lead to and the yeah. population of the prison system that has mental ill health, it's, you know, it's so important. Oh, look, look, absolutely. I mean, it's even on an economic basis, it's leaving people um, untreated slash unsupported and they end up in the prison system costs, well, costs society not just for their keeping in the prison system but the crimes themselves are obviously a, a burden on society too. Mm. So. We don't. We still don't do well with with mental health. As someone who has had such a background in data analysis, do you just? Is it like the final scene of the Matrix? Do you just look at the world and just ones and zeros and just see just data and 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 predictability everywhere? No, I don't. Absolutely not. I'll tell you what I do. I'm, I've got a background in science, and so. I'm asking myself, you know, where's the evidence here? I mean, when I'm dealing with you know, with the um, autism activism at the moment. And you, know, you see a statement like autism is a lifelong disorder. And you know, let's not argue too much about the word disorder here. I, I would object to, to that. But, you know, it's a lifetime condition. And so where's the evidence of that? Where's the studies that is actually, you know, and it's always a lifetime condition. How many people have been looked at? I mean, most of, we've only been looking at, um, at this for a relatively short number of years. We don't know very little about adults and so forth. It's an article of faith. And then you say, well, what actually is autism? And if you ask a psychologist, they'll say, well, here's my questionnaire, and you'll ask um, the psychiatrist, and I'll pull out the DSM-5 manual, and they'll say, well, here are the conditions. And you say, well, these aren't quite the same, are they? And then you might talk to somebody like you and me out in the, out in the world, and, and particularly when you're talking about what we used to call Asperger's, you say, well, there's a whole bunch of people who would never have seen a psychiatrist or a clinician about this because they're functioning well enough for their own purposes. So are we including these in our study, or are we only basing our idea of autism on the people who fronted up and said, I've got a problem with it. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a sort of science look at it and saying, well, hang on. You know, there's a whole lot of articles of faith here. It's politically good to, you know, for some to say, well, you're either in or you're out, you're either autistic or you're not. But I just don't see the evidence that says there's a hard boundary, for example. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I think that would be the the the, the greatest gift that I would want to bestow upon anyone is science literacy. And to, to know what evidence-based science is and to understand the scientific process. And that for me, I mean, not to be short of a physics degree where you're basically taught the alphabet of the universe and you can, you know, see how everything works together. Um, just being able to see, okay, so if this is been proven by a double-blind, yeah. you know, placebo-controlled study, it is then accepted that, you know, this is how this is going to work and therefore we can base some actions off of that just to have that kind of basic literacy. Yeah, look, and I, and I think that we... You know, You'd like everybody in society to have that. And unfortunately, I, look, things have probably changed since my day, but when science is taught, that, that's the outcome that you want. So you want that scientific literacy, that way of looking at things, you know, saying, look, sometimes you just feel. That's okay. Sometimes you just rely on your intuition. But knowing I'm only feeling this, I'm only relying on my intuition, if I actually need to know the facts here or if I hear this report that says, you know, blueberries are great for you, you'll live five years longer, can I look at that critically? And, you know, when it comes, and particularly it's around things to do with your health and so on, there's just so much quackery out there. So many, you surely have, um, you know, with your mental health issues and addiction stuff and so forth, you've surely had people say to you, all you need to do, or have you tried? Have you tried this sort of thing? And you think, well, you know, there's, there's thousands of thousands of things you might try, but is there something out there that's got some evidence that actually it might work? I, I I cannot tell you how many times people pop into my DMs and they go, mate, this guy runs a clinic in Mullumbimby and I swear, man, he's like, okay. Yeah, he's, he's magic. He, yeah. my, my friend went there yeah, and yeah. my friend was just like you, yeah. only worse. Uh, okay, so if you can show me that what this person does has been replicated by someone who really doesn't want it to work, all right, a hundred times, then maybe I'll go along for the $10, $1,500 sessions. Yeah, well, look, look absolutely, um, and it's all around. Yeah, all these things with diet and with, um, with, with, with particularly with mental well-being, because that's yeah. what we're well, people want their kids to feel better, and people will go to any length. You know, they, certainly if their son or daughter is struggling with an addiction or, or something like yeah. that, they will, people will be desperate, and people, if nothing's been working, they'll they'll try anything. And I understand that. I get that. You know, I want my kid to have. You know, if if she was in you know that situation, but. Just having the the knowledge to go well is it is it really can we prove it's better than a placebo? Oh look look, <laughs> look absolutely and I mean you know again just coming back to this autism thing there's enormous um, controversy around so, so called applied behaviour analysis well so called it's called applied behavioural analysis where you're basically trying to modify the kid's behaviour to stop them doing the things that are problematic. The question, though, is, is the cure worse than the uh, than what you're trying to fix? Are you traumatising the kid? Um, are you trying to change them in a way to make them more acceptable to you? Or is it really genuinely a problem they've got themselves? So it was interesting reading your book because it was quite clear that you were somebody and then some stuff happened, you know, addiction and mental um, illness and so on, and you wanted to overcome those things. You wanted to get rid of them. So it, it wasn't like you were... Per, they were your personality. There was a personality before and you wanted to get back to that in a sense. You wanted to rid yourself of things. Whereas when you're talking about something like autism, you're born that way. That's the way you are. That's your personality. So if you're starting to attack it, you're not talking about taking away something that's giving you a hard time. That That's inseparable from you. Yeah. A very different sort of picture. 
I, I, I wouldn't know. I don't know too much about how one raises a kid uh, who has these sorts of things going on or what kind of stuff. But I, I'd imagine that. I don't know what's the, what's the treatment look like at the moment. Is it don't do this, do that, or let's remember that you know when you are in this situation, there might be some loud noises. So you know you know how to manage Probably yourself. Skills, yeah. yeah. I, mean, if, I think when I was a kid, the, the attitude was very clearly again it was a man's got to have the following attributes, and no matter how much I didn't want to swim, I was going to have to learn to swim. It just wasn't possible to contemplate life without me being able to swim. And I happen to know now that I don't need to be able to swim. It's actually I never swim. You know, I don't, don't need to do it. I can, but the chances of me falling out of a boat is, is very, without a life jacket are very, very low indeed. But it was just, you know, if you can't, and the amount of trauma I went through you know, trying to learn to swim. Now, I wouldn't flick that on my kids these days as something that society expects of them. But if, for example, they're having big trouble with loud noises, then that's a different sort of matter because it's going to be almost unavoidable that they're going to encounter those. So so what are we going to do? We say, okay, they wear ear defenders. Uh, maybe they don't like wearing, wearing ear defenders. But, again, this is we call social disability in the sense that there's nothing actually wrong with ear defenders. It's just that they look weird. Mm-hmm. And that's the rest of society saying they look weird. Enough people wear them. And you see Bill Gates out with ear defenders on. People say, hey, good enough for Bill Gates. It's good enough for me. Yeah. I'm sure the same thing happened with glasses. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well quite, quite. I mean, well, even when I was at school, glass was the, glasses were the absolute sign of a nerd and so on. Less so now, less so now. I mean, particularly women wear them as a fashion item. Yeah, absolutely. Harry Potter, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All it takes is Harry Potter. He's got to get Harry Potter and hearing aids. I haven't got mine in at the moment because it's uh, it's just you and I in this room and it's quite quiet, but I normally wear hearing aids Yeah. So and because uh, we're sitting right across from each other and you're speaking pretty much without an accent, so I've, I'm okay. Well, it's interesting, you know, and, you know, there, there was a time when I think when we're wearing hearing aids, you'd have said, oh, you're a bit young for hearing aids and this sort of thing. Today, I think we're, we're much more accepting that you just use the technology to support yourself. I mean, the... I think it's entirely possible that we're all not wearing hearing aids because they give us superior hearing and mm. connect with our, our technology and so forth around us. Yeah, and connect with the people around us too. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I've got, I've got a, a friend whose who's father turns 104 and, um, in April and he still goes out walking and he's sharp as a tack and likes the books and all that sort of stuff. So we, he always gets the first audio copy because he can't his, – his eyesight's gone the last couple of years. So he gets the first audio copy in the world because I figure, you know, he's not buying right bana- unripe bananas. He's, you know, so you can get it. Um, he can listen to it. But his son, who's, you know, California, was saying, Dad, you know, he, it's all natural. He doesn't, you know, take any drugs. And his father stopped it and said, you've got to be kidding. He says, I'm only here because of drugs. You know? Right. I, I take my blood pressure twice a day. I, I, I adjust my blood pressure tablet to suit. I'm, a, you know, I'm a tribute to medical science. That's 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 fantastic. What, what I guess what we're talking about is something that I know that you do you do cover in your book is this idea of neurodiversity. That what you were describing and you describe, you know, a schooling system that you know many people listening definitely grew up with is like you're this or you're that. That's it. There's two options. But the idea of neurodiversity that there is there's a lot of different stuff going on. Well, well, in fact, the, the trouble was you were this or you were that, and if you were that, you were a problem. <laughs> So. Or, or you're this, which is normal, or you're something else. Yeah. And and that something else is whether whether or not we decide to classify as a disorder or a disease, it's back in the day it was not normal. And you know, there was, as I say, that, that distinction of you might decide to classify as an illness, a disease or something like that. They couldn't. They can't help it. 
and you would, but, but suddenly you've lost respect for that, that particular person. You, you wouldn't want to be like that yourself. And yeah, we're going to give all sorts of minority groups that have been treated that way in the past. Um, yeah, I mean, some, some absolutely persecuted, but even stepping back and when we say, oh, we we're fine about them, but, I mean, you wouldn't want your own kid. You'd be very disappointed if they turned out like that. I think when I wrote The Rosie Project, which was only you know, six years ago, neurodiversity wasn't a word that was bandied around very much at all. It's really come through in that period of time. I think I had an instinctive and intuitive idea of it, just saying that someone like my hero, Don Tillman, all I was really trying to say in the book is, he's all right. This is a guy that you say, he's the weird guy in accounts, he's got all the pens lined up or, or whatever. And I wanted people, what people did do, they came out of that book saying, you know what, he might be a good guy to date. <laughs> people, women would write to me and say, you know, I'll stop being a vegetarian in order to date someone like Don Tillman. And that was really what it was about, just saying, look, he's part of the human race too. He's not someone that you that you isolate and marginalise. And really neurodiversity, I think, is is just about embracing a wider and wider range of that. I, I guess, you know, and, and it's, it is in writing books and it is in through fiction because it's safe to explore stuff in fiction because, you know, you're, you're describing a, an imaginary situation but we then, when we read fiction, we then bestow our own experiences upon, like, this person was sad when the person walked in a room. I know what sad feels like. Okay, there they are. And that's how we relate to, yeah, to a novel. We empathise, yeah. Uh, we empathise. And... It is in the safety of the novel that people get to explore what it might be like to be around people who are perhaps different. Uh, well, well, in fact, what I tried to do with The Rosie Project, and I think I say the most important thing I did with that book was I wrote the first word because it had been a screenplay. With a screenplay, you're always, when you're watching a movie, you're on the outside looking at it. But with a book written in first person, because that first word was I, Say, you're going to be inside this guy's head. I don't want you to experience what it's like to hang out with Don Tillman. I want you to experience what it's like to be Don Tillman and say, well, okay, living in that space, I mean, we we do that. We read escapism. We're going to be Jason Bourne or or, uh, James Bond or whatever it's going to be. Well, this is saying it's going to be Don Tillman. This is how you're going to see the world and come out of that saying, well, that's not necessarily a bad way to see the world. That's, yeah, I get that. There's There's some sense to it. So... I wasn't trying to send a message, but I wanted to give people the experience of being in the head of someone, someone like that. Oh, I, you know, I, I wonder how many more stories we are going to get to hear because so far we've heard, I don't know, most of pop culture. Let's, I'm just going to just speak in grand statements now. Most of pop culture, yeah. Graham, is in our culture white, straight men's versions of the world. All right, whether it be, you know, mostly written by, mostly directed by, mostly published by, mostly on the radio, mostly making television. All right, that's it. But not novels. But true, 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 true. Uh, But but all of that is that it's white women. (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) That that you have, yeah, yeah, that women more than hold their own in the novel space in terms of particularly readership, but now in authorship. Yeah. Modern, we're talking about pop culture now, we're not talking about, you know, two or three centuries ago or even two or three decades ago. But a lot of fiction is written by women with a largely aimed at an audience of women, but you're quite right. They tend to be white women. So you, yeah, that divert, again, talking about autism, you know, autistic people are saying, what about own voices? We want to, we want to read stuff yeah, about with autistic characters written by autistic people because most of the time when a neurotypical like myself writes this stuff, they get it wrong. 
and and this is what I'm excited about, Graham, is that as we then move more and, and, and publishers and TV producers and content, you know, the people that are the gatekeepers basically, they're no longer the ones standing in the way of these things getting produced because, you know, if you've got a phone, you can make a, a podcast. Well, right you know, now, yep, yep. You know, so hearing these stories more and more from all aspects of like, oh, no, we've been here the whole time. I'm a fourth-generation, you know, Sri Lankan-Australian and we've celebrated every religious festival that does not look like Christmas for the last 90 years and uh, this is what life has been like living in the suburbs of Brisbane. I want to hear that story. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you want, I mean, ultimately it's far more interesting to hear about the diverse, the atypical yeah. people in society. And look, the other thing is... Yeah, we, we talk about, um, you know, say, autism awareness. Forget about autism awareness. What we need is autism acceptance. It's, it's not just saying, oh, it's out there. I know about it now. Uh, it's a real problem. And, and I think jobs in particular are a great way of, of bringing people into that world. I mean, if you're working with a blind person, for example, and must have had that experience, you, your view of blind people changes, you know, or visually impaired people changes because you've hung out with this person over a period of time and you get a sense of, okay, it's 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 not some just frightening sort of situation where, where they can't do anything and they're going to be There's helpless. a dog and a stick and I don't yeah, know what yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. And, I mean, the autism thing, we've seen a really – there's a wonderful company out there called uh, Specialist Turn. I don't – I can say they're virtually a charity, so I think I can sort of mention them. But what they do is they – they're mentioned in, um, in the Rosie Result and the Rosie Project. They hire, um, employ – people on the spectrum to do systems testing. It turns out that these guys often have a natural aptitude for it, um, do the work really well, and they're getting in people who might otherwise not have not have jobs. So a huge positive of that is that people are then going to end up, you know, people at work hanging out with these guys and saying, well, actually, yeah, they're a little different in some ways, but they're entirely decent human beings and so on. And then there's a university in Western Australia that is now taking people who are not able to quite get those jobs for specialist turn. They need help there. So they're training them up to get those jobs. So that's, that's, that's reaching, casting the net even wider again towards people who might otherwise not be employed. And I think, you know, whether we talk about traditional employment or whatever, just having people who are um, diverse in our workplaces around whether you're getting a coffee, you know, it's not just the, the Sri Lankan restaurant. <laughs> the Sri Lankan guy can be... Yeah. Uh, can be working at the radio station or whatever it might be. And I think it's a huge thing if we can do more of that. I, I would absolutely agree, and it's definitely how we as a, as a society and as a, as a community um, feel a little better. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm quite frightened by, you know, I don't know, what's the marginalised? I'm quite frightened by Arabic people. They, they kind of freak me out. But Muhammad, who, you know, works in accounts, he's awesome. You know, he's a really great guy, and he made me a really nice suite that he brought home from Eid. And uh, I, I tied it, and it was really nice. <laughs> yeah, look, look. I, I remember I did many years ago. I did some work with a Commonwealth government department, and there was one very senior guy. And part of it involved actually going out and meeting with some indigenous leaders and, and organisations in, in Western Australia. So it was part of the deal. And he, this guy was based in Canberra, and he got up in front of the group afterwards to talk about his experience. He said, "I'd never met an indigenous person until now." So he was someone who you know, lived in Australia, was out there making policy and, and doing. Just never met an indigenous person. So that and look, the truth is that I think there's a lot of Australians who have no indigenous friends, or they couldn't pick up the phone and think of an indigenous person to call and yeah, get get some input, talk. It's not too. It's not too hard. Certainly now, when you can go 
online and you may not know them personally, but you can, you know, follow someone on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and get a bead on on what life might be like for that person in modern Australia. Yeah, look, I mean, that was the dream of, um, of the internet and you know, it's been much criticised that we haven't achieved that dream. But look, in part, it happens. I have people who are interested in my books, for example, and they get in touch and they come from diverse backgrounds and places, which is, which is fascinating in itself that they're all attracted to a book like this. But you can start, you have your, you have your conversations and it's just, a, for want of a better word, a normalising process, just a takes away you know what will you call that fear factor which I think which I think is an intuitive thing it's not it's a reactive thing it's not something that you, you know, that you've done intellectually yeah. but just that that's that other and is that push away I think you know and I've heard this described in a few ways and it's a you know conf, confabulation of a few things put together yeah. but you know when there is someone that you are a little like oh I don't know what's going on there just remember that person uh, loves someone has someone that loves them they have a favorite song. They have a favourite thing to eat. They have a favourite film. They have their favourite memory with their mother or father or child. They just want three square meals a day just like you. They want a safe roof over their heads. They want their kids to do better than they did. And that's pretty probably much the same thing that you have. We all have a great deal in common except, of course, if you're in a, in a circumstance where something massive is dominating. You're in a war-torn country true. or, or, or true, whatever. True. You're being oppressed. Yeah. And so, but, look, I, I think... It was a very interesting experience I had. Um, you know, I am middle-aged, white, privileged, male, all those things. Um, at one stage, I explored whether I was autistic myself. I'm, and at the point where I went to get a, a diagnosis, as an, an adult diagnosis, and cut, cut to end, the answer was definitely not, okay, in terms of the diagnostic criteria. But I thought before I go for this diagnosis, I, I don't want to um, – second guess the outcome. I don't want to be invested in a particular outcome. I don't want to say, wouldn't it be great if I was autistic because then I would be able to get all his own voices stuff and I could claim I'm the leading autistic author and da 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 um, Or wouldn't it be great if I'm not? So I just, in effect, um, put myself in the headspace of you know, what would it be like to find out that I'm autistic? And the immediate pushback I had was this realisation that I would feel patronised, that I would, that the language around about autism and so forth, I don't want to be a person with autism like it's a, a disease or anything like that. I don't want anyone pitying me or feeling or believing that I don't feel like other people. All the stuff about autistic people don't have empathy, which is not true. Autistic people don't have emotions. But there would be a whole bunch of people out there thinking exactly that about me. And that was a, a really bad feeling. Um, and it was just interesting to sort of have myself in that position of being in a very marginal way, part of an oppressed group and what it actually what it actually felt like. And that's where we'll leave part one of my chat with Graham Simpson. Uh, part two continues tomorrow where we talk about the process of writing, uh, creativity, and indeed how he sits down to write these incredible books. When you write a book, there are essentially three stages. First stage is planning. Second stage is you write a draft, and the third stage is rewriting slash editing. And different writers will give different emphasis to those stages. So there are some people who do no planning, so they will tell you. And then you've got some people who try to write it perfectly the first time. And so, so I'm a big planner. I spend a lot of time, maybe a year, for a novel planning. I then start the draft, and I work hard and in a concentrated sort of way for about two months. 
That part is the part that I, I have a routine for. I get up in the morning, I read what I wrote the previous day and correct that. So just give it one pass. And you can always make it a little bit better. But then I look at what I'm going to write today. And then I go for a 3.8 kilometre walk. All I'm thinking about is, how do I write that? How can I make that interesting, fun, whatever? Go back, sit down, write it. It's the day. If you like what you hear, you can let Graham know. He's on Twitter, Graham Simsion, G-R-A-E-M-E-S-I-M-S-I-O-N. The Rosie Trilogy are the books. You can buy them where you buy books. So go get after it. If you bought my book and you want to come see my show, which is based upon the book, except their songs, uh, I'd love to see you there. We're playing in Wollongong, the Gold Coast, and Canberra, oshiginsburg.com. A big thank you to everybody that helped me make the show today. Andy Ma, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my show producer, Mike Mills, Toehider, who will also be joining me for the live shows. Mike Mills did all the music today. Uh, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 